Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us to discuss what's next on the 10th anniversary of the start of Russia's war on Ukraine and the second anniversary of the large-scale invasion to take the country are among the finest Russia analysts in the world, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Dr. Eugene Rumer, the director of the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also a former National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia on the National Intelligence Council. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. It's always an honor and pleasure having you both on. And before we get started, our coverage of strategy, strategic issues, and conversations with leading thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the late former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. The strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Again, uh, Eugene and Sam, welcome back uh, to uh, the program. Eugene, let me start with you. Uh, It's an extraordinary time as uh, GOP lawmakers, unfortunately, slow roll more aid for Ukraine. Uh, Russia is demonstrating uh, what it always does, uh, which is to hit the gas in moments like this. It's uh, stepping up strikes. Uh, on uh, Ukraine as it literally runs out of ammunition, as we saw in Avdivka, and we'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, It killed its leading opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, uh, on the eve of the Munich Security Council. It assassinated uh, in Spain uh, and in gruesome fashion uh, a Russian who had defected to Ukraine uh, with uh, a Russian helicopter. It arrested uh, a Russian-American for donating $50 to Ukraine. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, garnering Uh, an an incredible uh, windfall uh, in uh, the wake of Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir uh, Putin, injecting some of the messages that the Russian leader wanted injected in the American political bloodstream. Uh, It's now 10 years uh, of war, and I think it's stunning that people are still sort of surprised by Putin's actions. The White House is considering more sanctions. Eugene, where, where are we in this conflict? Where is it going geopolitically? And what more does the international community need to do either to help Ukraine or to punish Russia for its behavior? Because it's actually getting steadily worse or more brazen, maybe. Yes, indeed, Vago. Uh, It it is getting steadily worse. Um, I would say that the critical action in the war um, is now in Washington, Um, as you pointed out previously. Um, it is a question of whether or not the United States will be able to provide uh, the additional assistance to Ukraine and whether that assistance will be enough to enable Ukraine to implement its new defensive strategy or a strategy of active defense, as they're calling it. And really, you know, it depends on the whim and will of one man by the name of Donald Trump. Um, and uh, all this is happening against the backdrop of um, the Munich Security Conference that took place just a couple of days ago. And the striking aspect of what I think uh, really transpired at the Munich Security Conference was that the leaders of the Western Alliance came out just uh, complaining, but not having any sense of vision of where they want to go. And you said, this war is 10 years old. So you'd think that 10 years into this war, they would have some idea, yet the answer really is not. Sam, what's your broad sort of geostrategic 
uh, sense on on where we are and where we're going after ten years of this and two two years of what we could say is is more you know sort of as the wake up call, right? I mean, what what Eugene is saying is even more startling against that backdrop. I think probably one of the more remarkable developments two years into this conflict has been uh, our, our assessment off and uh, you know how much we were probably off in that assessment and Russia's ability to take casualties. I don't think any military analyst um, looking at this conflict early on and certainly looking at this conflict as it, as it was shaping up in late 2021, uh, January 2022, could have thought that Russia would just so easily have absorbed so many casualties, hundreds of thousands killed, hundreds of thousands injured, without any significant discernible effect on the society, on the population, on how the war is perceived at home and with all of the other resulting consequences. That's probably, for me at least, uh, one of the more shocking developments. I probably shouldn't be that surprised, but if we looked at Russia in the context of modern warfare, and Russia has been communicating that it is modernizing its forces starting in uh, 2010-2011, and modernizing the force with modern weapons means you are taking fewer and fewer casualties because you're substituting more advanced weapons and systems in in place of soldiers who are, who have to perform dangerous missions. So the fact that Russia went full on World War One, World War Two, in this conflict in the last two years is again rather surprising. But we 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 probably should not be that surprised. And of course, another major development in this war. And this is something you and I have talked about uh, practically every week since the war has begun was the rapid emergence of new technologies that have had such a significant impact on this conflict, including right. drones and unmanned systems. Indeed, uh, we, we have Sam and you've been kind enough, uh, both of you have been kind enough to join us intermittently, but Sam, you win, you win the award for being the most consistent uh, uh, person who's come and uh, talk to us, uh, including the nuances of the development of unmanned capability, which has been central uh, to this war. Eugene, I'm going to uh, go back to you. The, the White House uh, is and the president has said that he is willing to consider even uh, more sanctions uh, on uh, the Russians and Russian interests. At, at this point, we've sort of plateaued, right? Sanctions work if you keep tightening them in smart ways. And it's not abundantly clear that we've been doing that, right? Oligarch families are still partying up in Europe, uh, for example. Um, and, and, and the United States and its allies seem still to be confined by rules that Russia does, you know, is, is not confined by. Yeah, Russia is operating completely outside any rules and effectively daring everybody to do something about it. And the Chinese are pretty good at, at watching this. What next can and should Washington be doing with its allies and partners uh, in a case when a major international player, a member of the United Nations Security Council, is misbehaving this badly? Well, uh, I don't think that we can realistically do a whole lot about Russia's rogue behavior. Um, that's something that the Russians have adopted as part of their toolkit. And just as you mentioned, you know, after the assassination of the uh, Russian pilot in Spain, it's pretty clear that they intend to pursue it anywhere, everywhere, at any time. Uh, we have other precedents, unfortunately, for it too. But I go back to what I said in the beginning. The most important thing that the United States and its allies can do now is to come up with a supplemental that will result in more artillery shells, more material, 
more ammunition going to Ukraine to enable Ukraine to hold the line against the Russian onslaught and to re, re, recapitalize, so to speak, for the long war that it is bound to be. Uh, it, it is bizarre to really think that Russia is waging the war against the West and the, with all its military, economic, and technological might is unable to mobilize enough resources. And it's really not a question of resources, but more political will to stand up to a country that, you know, has a GDP that is just a fraction of, of its GDP, that is a population that is a fraction of its population that technologically is sliding ever further backward. Um, and, and the answer, in you know, as I said in the Munich Security Conference, is to come out and just complain. Um, Sam, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. Uh, a shortage of ammunition uh, has uh, led uh, to uh, the debacle that is Avdivka. The Ukrainians are saying that this was an organized retreat with all of its forces, uh, but that uh, appears to be inaccurate. Uh, there are news reports uh, that hundreds were captured, and we know incidents and, and heartrending incidents uh, where soldiers that were wounded appear to have been left behind and, and um, killed by the Russians. Um, what 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 does this loss mean? Uh, because the Ukrainian attitude has been, look, we will hold, uh, and whenever there's an opportunity to deliver big casualties, we will. What does this mean? Well, obviously, uh, Russian forces have been pouring a lot of resources into this battle because they needed to show that a lot of the deaths and a lot of casualties, a lot of damage and destruction wasn't just for nothing. And so I, I think one of the stats I read recently is that Russia lost more around Avdivka in the past two years than they have in the entire decade of their involvement in Afghanistan in uh, 1979 through 1989. So this was obviously a very important milestone for Russia because it is probably more a psychological victory than it is an actual um, tactical victory, given how many resources were expended there. But as I have indicated, and as we have discussed, and as, as others have pointed out, Russia is willing to sustain many casualties. It is willing to throw soldiers at the Ukrainian positions in order to sort of inch away at the Ukrainian forces. So Ukrainian withdrawal was motivated by logical assessment of the situation. They couldn't right. allow themselves to be surrounded. They couldn't allow themselves to be sort of in the similar situation that they found themselves back in 2014, 2015, especially the debauts of a situation. And so they had to withdraw. This was the logical tactical decision. But uh, for Russia to have uh, essentially bombed the entire city to the ground and uh, to litter the ground with their dead in the many thousands, uh, this again speaks to their ability to sustain casualties, which I think was probably a more defining feature in um in in their overall approach to Ukraine, right? A lot of military analysts who looked at the Russian military capability probably could not conceive or consider that in modern conflict, Russia would be able to sustain these World War II level casualties. And yet it has, yet it continues. and uh, it is continue it is continuing to tap into its Cold War stockpiles of weapons and systems especially older tanks and other uh, systems. So you and I talked about how Russia basically needs to right. outlast Ukraine, how it needs to outlast international right. aid. And that means that eventually Russia will be fighting with uh, weapons which are not quite as modern as it had in 2021. And that's exactly what it's doing. 
So again, for Ukraine, this was a logical tactical decision, but for Russia to have wasted so many lives on this small parcel of territory, which is now uh, full of uh, unexploded ordnance and is full of destroyed buildings. I mean, it's, it's a staggering assessment, staggering achievement in the sense that it's almost a Pyrrhic victory in the sense of how much was wasted. Well, one of the things that a British general uh, officer acquaintance uh, made to me very early in this conflict was uh, Russia has a tendency of losing battle after battle after battle and then eventually winning the war because it's willing to expend the resources and and, uh, willing to mobilize. And we've seen that mobilization uh, as well as the fielding. Uh, of uh, new systems, whether uh, hypersonic. We, we can debate about whether or not some of these cruise missiles and other systems are true hypersonic weapons, uh, but they are designed to to terrorize. Um, Eugene, one, one thing I have to, but I do have to ahead. say one thing. So, and again, mm-hmm. and, and this all goes back to sort of uh, President Putin's policies um, that are directed at, at the society, right? And one of these major policies, one of his sort of major milestones is uh, to increase the birth rate amongst uh, the Russians, to grow the birth rate, right, to to grow the next population. There were a lot of government incentives given to young families. There were a lot of different attempts to sort of increase the population and and create, again, uh, lots of sort of incentives for people to do so. But how are you going to do that if you've just wasted hundreds of thousands of young men in this war who are not going to go back to their families. They're not going to have families. They're not going to have children. So I think some of these contradictions are still rather staggering because on one hand, the society seems to go along with this. On the other hand, a lot of Putin's actions seem to completely contradict themselves. Right. Uh, Well, and even assuming that that's going to pay dividends, it's not going to pay dividends for another 18 years, right? And it's unclear whether or not you're going to be uh, in a position that uh, advances the interests uh, of, of, of the nation. Um, Eugene, uh, Dr. Jack Wapling, uh, one of the most astute observers of, of the war from the uh, Royal United Services Institute, has, has made the case that Ukrainian forces are tired and that, you know, the, the more quickly you give them ammunition and the means to fight, the lower the casualties. Unfortunately, as aid has been running out over the last five or six months, uh, the casualty rates really have risen to the point where uh, I was uh, on a uh, background call with a Ukrainian commander some weeks ago, which the audience has heard about. And, and he said, look, at a, at a certain point, it's not really going to help if you give us these weapons. If I lose the cadre of experienced soldiers that we're losing at the rate of between two and eight hundred a day. Um, at, at what point does the Ukrainian position become untenable, Eugene? And how do you see this because jack has said that that the the seeds of the you know that that it seems to go slowly at first and then a collapse is very rapid what are some of the eventualities people ought to be preparing for and at what point does it get too late to help the ukrainians help themselves well as i think you just suggested vago some of these things are really not that they're they're really incalculable uh, you have all manner of psychological factors coming in, but it's true that some of the frontline troops are still fighting, have been fighting for two years now in this incredibly brutal, um, exhausting uh, battle. Um, and uh, it's not only a question of material for the Ukrainian military to come up with, 
in time, but also it's a question of uh, generating enough uh, personnel uh, to backfill a lot of these units. So I would say that the task before Ukrainian leadership really is monumental. It's partly to um, replenish uh, the supplies, partly to um, uh, rebuild the units, but also it's about retraining these units um, and uh, making sure that people are rotating at decent intervals so they can get a break from this. So, you know, it's not something that lends itself to an easy calculation. We don't know when that can happen, you know, when when when, when the front will give. Uh, hopefully not soon. And hopefully the aid from the United States and the European allies will arrive in time. But uh, it is a really... Uh, critical problem facing the Ukrainian leadership to declare mobilization, to supply these troops, to train them. It all comes together at a very, very unfortunate juncture for Ukraine. And a quick word from all of our sponsors. The Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, HII, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, Sam, what's what's your sense now that Avdivka has fallen? Can the Ukrainians hold the line uh, that they're on? Obviously, they've been trying to supplement artillery systems with unmanned systems and showing some uh, progress on that. But as many have said, the you know for each one round Ukraine fires, uh, Russia fires six or ten more in in return. What does this look like? And now that Avdivka has given, should we see more territory being ceded or? Or less. How do you how do you see this playing out over the next couple of weeks and months? I think Ukrainians can definitely uh, hold on and hold off the Russian advances. It's not like with the fall of Avdiivka, Russia is going to steamroll its way west. Um, you know, gaining dozens of kilometers each day. That's not going to happen. This is still going to be a very slow advance. Uh, Ukrainians are learning very quickly about Russian capabilities. Ukrainians know how to target Russian positions and Russian soldiers. There's still um, a, a fairly good amount of uh, sort of the stalemate situation that was described by General Zaluzhny late last year with both forces fielding equal uh, or um, similar types of assets that, for example, impede the advances, such as lots of drones, lots of UAVs, lots of strike UAVs that make any specific advance very costly. Uh, and so Ukraine has a lot of these capabilities. Some of these capabilities are, in fact, better than the Russians. But Russians are starting to gain a numerical advantage in some of these technologies, including, for example, fielding more FPV drones and maybe more quadcopters right. and ISR drones. But again, Ukraine has been at this war for two years, and uh, there's a lot of um, knowledge that is currently with the Ukrainian military. It's high command to slow down the Russian forces and, and to make any of their advances costly. But on the Russian side, of course, the fall of Avdivka is presented basically something akin to the liberation of Stalingrad in 1942. Right. And so Russians will want to capitalize on this uh, psychological as well as tactical victory and advance forward. But again, any such advance will be countered by Ukrainian tactics that have been honed over the past two years by a very capable uh, command structure and a very capable force. Eugene, all rights movements, you know, it's it's been just before we started, you said it's been a very, very difficult week and, and there isn't anybody uh, who has a soul if they're not moved by 
uh, what happened to Alexei uh, Navalny and his courage and really the cowardice of those that don't want to step up and help Ukraine in its hour of need right now and actually indirectly help Russians uh, by by defeating this evil that's that's leading them. All rights movements are characterized by optimism, uh, which I guess is necessary in the face of tyranny. Uh, on the other hand, it can also be overly optimistic, right? I mean, a year ago when Prigozhin was marching on Russia, on Moscow, you know, the number of people saying, it, you know, it'll be Navalny and Karamurza leading the country. Uh, our thoughts are with Vladimir and his courage and bravery. Uh, but having done what they did to Navalny, they can do it to anybody. Ultimately, how secure is Putin and how realistic is it that even in death, Navalny or his wife taking up the mantle now is really going to have any appreciable, I mean, are Russians going to stand up in the wake of this or are Russians going to do what they've done throughout history, which is just sort of keep their heads down? Uh, I'm afraid it's the latter. Um, There are some incredibly brave Russians. I mean, as an indicator of what it takes to show some courage these days, um, laying flowers uh, at a spot where people come to commemorate um, the the life of Alexei Navalny is a is a sign of incredible bravery, uh, and people do this under the watchful eye of Russian police and probably facial recognition systems that uh, will uh, track them down. Um, but it seems that the majority of the Russian population is prepared to keep their heads down. Um, Mrs. Navalny now has taken over the cause of her husband. She's an incredibly brave woman. You can only admire her. But for her sake, I hope she doesn't go back to Russia because who knows what they'll do to her. Um, So uh, it really is, in a sense, a no-win situation. On a relatively bright side, I want to stress that our ability to predict the course of Russian domestic politics is really not great. So who knows? Maybe sometime next year, the year after Putin will be gone, and we'll see another thaw in Russian domestic politics. But until that happens, I am pretty pessimistic. And I do fear for the lives of people like Vladimir Karamurza, as well as Navalny's family, who I hope are now outside somewhere in the West. But as you and I just discussed, even in the West, nobody is safe. Uh, That's uh, true indeed. Uh, Sam, anything you want to add from that? Uh, Knowing the system as you do, right? I mean, you're not just a military analyst. You know the system really well uh, with family, unfortunately, who's been involved in it uh, as well as as Eugene and, and me in my case. Uh, as well. What's what's your sense on the sort of broader front? Well, unfortunately, uh, Navalny's death was not a surprise. And I think this is the sentiment that, that was expressed by sort of the majority of the uh, community that looks at Russian politics and, uh, and other internal issues. Uh, this was almost a predetermined outcome from the minute right. that he landed in Russia. I think Mrs. Navalny is extremely brave to take up the mantle, but I think a lot of Russians are going to question uh, the efficacy of her approach if uh, she will not be able to return to Russia and will uh, try to rally um, 
essentially um, the efforts uh, from abroad. Um, right now, Russian president, Russian government, and uh, Russian sort of higher um, decision-making echelons have sort of crafted this narrative that if you want to do important work in Russia, you have to be in Russia proper. That if you are, um, if you're an, if you're an emigre of one form or another, you're not going to be as effective, and therefore you will be presented as sort of ineffective to the Russian people and the Russian society. And right. so uh, I completely concur with Eugene. I hope she doesn't come back because of what a, what awaits her. At the same time, um, there there've been multiple efforts by a lot of dissidents, sort of to um, try. Um, and change things in Russia from without. Um, and those efforts have not proven effective uh, all this time. I don't know how, how many Russian people will uh, see her as uh, someone who can pick up her husband's flag and move forward. Uh, it's not clear exactly how many Russians are actually grieving Navalny right now, given all the other issues that are going on in the country. And of course, with the Russian government controlling the narrative, um, controlling the state media, and sort of uh, trying to present itself as the only real capable governance structure for the Russian people, I think the the competition for attention uh, with the Russian people is going to be most extreme and most extensive for anyone who is trying to um, present an alternate point of view. So, so I think it's again, it's an, it's a very unfortunate situation, and uh, unfortunately, this was very much a predetermined outcome the minute Navalny decided to return. Um, uh, Estonian intelligence. Uh, oh, go ahead, Eugene. Uh, you know, one of the questions that people have been asking, unfortunately, is why it has taken so long for the regime to kill him. Uh, or if he died of quote-unquote natural causes, if it wasn't an outright murder in prison, then why didn't they do it sooner? And by the way, Navalny's brother, uh, who is apparently not in Russia anymore, uh, was just uh, accused by the Russian prosecutor's office of some unspecified crime, um, and they put him on a wanted list. And this man has already served the prison sentence. Uh, on uh, completely trumped up charges. Uh, look, I mean, the depravity of this uh, regime uh, doesn't surprise me, especially for a man who admires uh, Stalin and has been working to rehabilitate him. And it's only a matter of time before you get to that point where you're killing actually many, many more people with impunity, not just imprisoning them. Uh, as we're seeing, as you said, it's a courageous act and hundreds are being arrested all around the country. The point is, Unless tens of thousands take to the street as immediately, you don't you don't change that factor. Um, we know that the Russians will still be a threat to Europe. Estonian intelligence had a terrific report out last week that said in the next decade, you know, their their goals are very clear and we should take uh, Putin very seriously for the threats he makes. And we ignore the threat at our peril. Uh, at the same time, there are guys like Lech Wałęsa uh, who have said, that it's this is a generational opportunity to help uh, fix one of the great flaws of the end of the Cold War, which is to allow one evil empire to be replaced by another evil empire that's a threat uh, to Europe. Um, I mean, Eugene, I know you're making the point that the battle really is won or lost in Washington, but ultimately, 
what more can the international community can and should be doing in this instance? Is it merely just spending more money? Is it working to actively undermine Putin and the Russian regime? During the Cold War, it was astonishing. They were committed to the destruction of Western governments, and yet Western governments were still playing, still not really working particularly hard to break the Soviet Union. What's, what's the right way to look at this in your estimation? And, and do it, we need a broader it, propaganda campaign to undermine Putin at home and take the gloves off at some point? Um, I think the answer should be all of the above. Um, I would certainly take uh, the warnings of the Estonian government and the Estonian intelligence service seriously. I don't believe anymore that with Putin emboldened, the magic of NATO's Article 5 guarantee really works uh, is something that can be taken for granted. Um, so um, I, I, I don't think that in itself uh, NATO guarantee is a deterrent. It has to be backed up by what the alliance has mostly neglected to do over the past 10 years since the annexation of Crimea, when it became irretrievably, irreversibly clear of what we're dealing with, if it wasn't clear before. So, um, you know, it's not just a question of spending money, but it's also a question of uh, reimagining completely Europe's defense and deterrence capabilities and really waking up from the slumber that Europe has been for the past 30 years, hoping that the post-Cold War is the new normal as opposed to it being an, an, a, a, an interlude between the two normals, that is the Cold War and what right. we're today, that is Cold War II, or whatever you want to call it. And by the way, when you tell people, as I do occasionally when I'm doing public speaking, that you know we're in the new Cold War, People recoil at that thought, and they shouldn't. And that means that we should be pursuing a strategy of containment against Russia, a much more robust strategy of def building up def defensive and deterrent capabilities in Europe, and yes, reaching deep into Russia to weaken the regime and presenting those Russian citizens who are interested, I'm not sure everybody's interested, but those who are with a different set of resources on the basis of which they can form their opinions. And, and how dangerous against that backdrop, Eugene, are Trump's comments about NATO and about Putin? Very, very dangerous. I mean, you're, you're in a sense answering your own question, but very dangerous because anything that really serves to undercut um, NATO's guarantee, uh, which is you know, not automatic comes with capabilities uh, is extremely harmful. Uh, Sam, I want to give you uh, a moment before we uh, go to Eugene and hear about his uh, incredibly awesome uh, trip through uh, the Caucasus. Last thoughts on your part? Well, we are about to clock the second year anniversary of this invasion. Again, a lot of our assessments, earlier assessments were proven wrong. Uh, this invasion has exposed our, a lot of gaps in our own sort of analytical space and analytical efforts about Russia, about Ukraine. And uh, we 
have to consider that this war will last well into 2024 and into 2025. And certainly Russian government has indicated that it is capable of doing so. So if uh, we are to really help Ukraine, we must do everything possible for it to be able to fight, to be able to fight well against the Russian military and have the weapons and tactics at its disposal to do just that. But again, um, this war has appended a lot of assumptions. This war has appended a lot of um, uh, previously held beliefs about what is and is not important. And uh, it remains probably a very unique case in history where uh, so many older tactics that Russia is using, for example, are now conducted with some of the more advanced weapons and systems that did not exist in such quantities or qualities prior to February 2022. So uh, the role of UAVs, drones, robotic systems, artificial intelligence, uh, it is only going, th this is only going to become more visceral and more important as this war continues. And Eugene, in the time we've got left, really quickly talk to us about your uh, trip. You went to Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey. What were your takeaways? Well, my takeaways are this. Um, um, Georgia is, in a way, stuck in time. Uh, it's heading into another election this fall. And by all accounts, uh, the, the, you know, the Georgian Dream Coalition uh, owned slash headed by the Russia-friendly oligarch Benzim Nevanishvili will probably remain in power. Um, the most dramatic, really, situation is with Armenia that is finding itself under heavy pressure from Azerbaijan for effectively, I wouldn't call them territorial concessions, but for major strategic concessions that would really uh, put Armenia in a very, very unfavorable situation, even more so. And all this is happening as I read the tea leaves with Vladimir Putin, uh, who is supposed to be the strategic ally of Armenia, perfectly happily looking the other way while uh, Azerbaijan is squeezing Armenia for all it's got. And um, looking at the Baku-Ankara dynamic, it seems that uh, Turkish government, President Erdogan is perfectly content with the situation to take his cues on relations with Armenia from Baku. So, and, uh, and and you think there's a, as you had mentioned earlier when you joined us, that there's a, quote, drug deal between uh, Aliyev and Putin as a cutout, which we're seeing increasingly with oil, right? So you, you actually see that the security guarantor for Armenia might actually have a side deal with the country that wants to destroy the Armenian Republic. That's unfortunately my reading of the tea leaves right now. I think you, you put it very well. Guys, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure having you both on. Uh, really appreciate it and look forward already to having you guys back on again soon. Thanks so very much. All right. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Vago. And thanks to all of you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. We'll be back again tomorrow uh, with the Air Power podcast. Until then, hope everybody has a great day and we'll see you again soon.